Hi, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the continuing wildfire threat in British Columbia. The village of Lytton destroyed in a terrifying fire on Wednesday. The investigation continuing there. Meanwhile, it was a hairy night last night in Kamloops. Lightning strikes igniting more fires just outside that city. Two neighborhoods evacuated last night. Thankfully, firefighters able to hold back the flames. We're live on the air in Kamloops on Radio NL this morning. And hearing from lots of our listeners, feels like they dodged a bullet there last night. Let's get the latest now from my guest, Mike Farnworth, B.C. Solicitor General, Minister of Public Safety. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Good morning. Minister, let's start with uh, the, the awful situation in Lytton. Can you give us an update on the investigation there? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Just a horrific situation in Lytton. What I can tell you is that RCMP are currently uh, determining and assessing the, uh, the situation on the ground in terms of its safety. Um, there are, as you know, uh, all the infrastructure was destroyed, um, cell, to- cell phone towers, the RCMP detachment, like literally everything. Uh, there's a lot of down power lines, so they are doing that assessment uh, in terms of that. At the same time, they're also working uh, with regional district, um, uh, with uh, RCMP themselves in terms of determining, you know, where everybody has, has gotten to, trying to make sure that everybody is accounted for. Uh, because people did go to, uh, you know, had to leave on a moment's notice, and they went to uh, a, a number of, of different communities, Spence's Bridge, uh, Boston Bar, uh, you know, Kamloops, Ashcroft, Lillooet. Um, so that's important work that's also underway as well. Okay, we've heard reports of at least two confirmed fatalities. There are a couple who tried to shelter in a trench, which is just horrifying to think about. Uh, do you have any updates on... Uh, are there any other confirmed fatalities, or and how many people are missing? I don't. I don't have a confirmation in terms of uh, additional uh, of, of additional fatalities. Uh, I can tell you that the coroner uh, is up there, uh, and then uh, we will wait for, for further information uh, uh, when when things are are, are confirmed. And as I said, uh, the RCMP and uh, <clears throat> regional district and registration centers are registering people. And that will allow us to to, to, to have a full understanding of, of where everybody right. is. About a thousand people uh, were were affected and uh, and and left uh, and left Lytton. Okay, it's safe to say though that not everyone's accounted for though at this point, right? I mean, there are people that are unaccounted for. Is that correct? That is correct. That yeah. is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're just hoping for the best there. This fire, when it erupted, we're hearing from the mayor that he smelled smoke, and then minutes later, it seemed like the fire was racing through the entire village. And we've heard lots of reports about how this potentially started. There was there were early reports that maybe it started, but from a spark from a passing train. Do you have any and many more information on that and how this started? What I can tell you at this point is that the fire itself is still under investigation. Uh, we have not confirmed in terms of how it started, but there are experts up there who are who are involved in, in, in determining uh, what the cause is. Uh, it's important to note that there were two fires. Uh, one was the uh, the fire that had been up there that uh, fire service crews had been battling. Um, the fire that uh, swept uh, through through uh, through Lytton was the second was the second fire, and that's the one. That uh, is under investigation in terms of its call. In, in terms of its cause, um, it appears to have originated down uh, um, 
towards the, the, the rail track. But as I said, there's no confirmation on the exact cause, but it is very much under investigation. Okay, talking to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, just taking a look at the BC wildfire dashboard right now, Minister Online, 119 fires burning, uh, 49 fires ignited just in the last 48 hours. Can you comment on the general uh, uh, state of threat to the province right now, and if there are enough resources on the ground, do we need help from outside the province? We have uh, we have a very high fire risk right across uh, the province at the moment. Um as you said, there's 119 fires uh, underway. Nine of them uh, in particular of note were sort of interface where near communities and states of emergency uh, evacuation alerts and evacuation orders are, are in place. In terms of the resources that are required, we've been in touch with the, uh, the federal government. I've spoken with both Bill Blair, the Minister of Public Safety, and uh, um, the Minister of Defence in terms of resources that may be required. Uh, at this point in time, what we're looking at uh, is a um, is probably air resources to uh, to lift crews to different places. Uh, the federal government has told us whatever we need, they they will they will you know supply. Uh, in terms of, of on the ground resources, that's coordinated across the uh, the country through the <coughs> fire center in Winnipeg. And so, if we require additional resources and we have put in requests, then that's managed from there and they are sent out here. Uh, right now, um, we've got uh, uh, firefighters are, you know, fighting the, uh, the fires right across the province and doing a, an right. absolutely incredible job. But uh, the resources are there. Um, we need them through the fire center. And the feds have indicated absolutely uh, any anything we need in terms of, of uh, aircraft, for example, they'll right. make available. Right, Minister, speaking of the heroic efforts of firefighters, it, it sounds like that's what happened last night in Kamloops. That was a terrifying situation there last night following it on social media with people posting videos and messages as they were being evacuated from those two neighborhoods being threatened in Kamloops. We're, we're live on the air there right now. What can you say about uh, how those fires were contained? It sounds like firefighters were able to just stop the, stop the flames there. They did, they did an absolutely amazing job. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that, that people have, should have absolute confidence in is the training and the skill level of the professional firefighters we have in our municipalities the, the training and the skill level of the BC Fire Service uh, and the men and women uh, in the BC Fire Service is absolutely first class, and they know uh, what to do, when to do it, how to do it, uh, and uh, and that was demonstrated last night uh, in uh, in Kamloops, and it's being demonstrated in, on fires uh, right across uh, the uh, the uh, right across the province, many in places that are that are remote and and, uh, and hard to reach. What happened there last night in Kamloops? Because at one point it looked really, really dire and scary, and then they were able to stop it. Like, do you know? Do you know what sort of tactics were used there last night? Or I know they got a little bit of rain there at an opportune time as well. Well, there's a whole number of factors that they will come into place. I mean, one of the things they often they will try and ensure is, is that they'll use uh, uh, fire breaks. Uh, yeah. So either natural fire breaks if there's a creek or a road, for example, or uh, if, if, if equipment is required to make a fire break to, 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 to stop the fire, uh, then of course it's making sure you have good information and knowing where the sparks are, where the, where the, where the blaze is erupting so you can get on it right away. Uh, it's things such as the deployment of, uh, of air resources, um, helicopters if necessary. Uh, all of those things come into play. What it comes down to is, is training and expertise and an understanding of, 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 how, fire, uh, of how fire behaves. And then, obviously, uh, rain uh, is always uh, is always helpful. 
And actually, that's one of the things right now that has assisted a bit uh, is over the last few days in uh, in northern B.C., there was uh, some considerable uh, precipitation, which was uh, has allowed us to, to bring resources from the northern part of the province to be shifted into the south where where uh, there's, uh, you know, the need is great right now. Minister, do you think that we need, uh, can you comment on the plan that's in place right now to respond to an emergency like this and if it needs to be updated? There's been some speculation here in the last 48 hours or so that maybe there should be some kind of automatic triggering to some kind of a code red situation when the the temperature reaches a minimum level and we move into uh, emergency preparedness based on uh, based on the heat. Um, Can you can you talk a little bit about the emergency plan? Because I know it's under review. So. In terms of the fire situation, it's assessed on the ground, and we have the fire service and the forest service are monitoring constantly in terms of moisture levels, in terms of fuel levels, in terms of weather. All of those things are, are taken into account. Uh, and, of course, one of the big things is, is, uh, is in particular this time of year, is lightning and lightning strikes. In terms of how we approach, there's been a lot of changes in, 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 in dealing with emergency planning uh, since the 2017 fire. Uh, and so you've seen, for example, we've gone from a paper-based system to a digital system in terms of registration, far more efficient. Uh, at the same time, we know that the old act uh, is outdated uh, yeah. and it is, it's undergoing a current uh, rewrite um, to bring it up to date. So dealing not just with flood and fire pandemic, but also heat as well. Uh, it's incorporating the recommendations from the, uh, the Abbott-Chapman report, which was done. Um, chaired by former uh, cabinet minister George Abbott after the 2017 election, all of those things are coming into um, uh, update, updated legislation right. being placed for for, uh, for for next year. Minister, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue our coverage of the wildfire threat in British Columbia, taking a look at the BC wildfire dashboard online. 119 fires burning in the province right now 49 fires have ignited in the last 48 hours of course on wednesday we saw that catastrophic fire in the village of Lytton that leveled uh, most of that village and turned it into ash with a very very fast moving fire we heard from the mayor yesterday saying he smelled smoke wednesday afternoon and seemed like within minutes the fire was racing through the entire village. You heard my conversation this morning with BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, who confirms that there are people still unaccounted for from the village. There's two confirmed fatalities there so far of a couple who tried to uh, weather the, the fire in a trench. Uh, they didn't make it. It was tragic. Uh, I fear, I fear we may get more bad news as the investigation continues here into the aftermath of that fire. Have a listen to this. Here's a, a resident of Lytton here describing the damage people's lives are ruined um uh, it's it's just horrible and my heart's with my constituents um who've who've lost their homes and are going to have to rebuild from from scratch okay it's really tragic situation there are a number of fundraising campaigns underway for the people who've been displaced from their homes there in Lytton that i encourage you to consider supporting let's talk about the the threat the wildfire threat in our province right now could it get even worse we're only at the beginning of july right now my guest is professor laurie daniels from the faculty of forestry at the university of british columbia she's an expert on wildfires and i'm very pleased she could join us uh, laurie thanks a lot for coming on good morning mike i'm glad to be with you 
Okay, thanks a lot for being here. It's tragic circumstances as we talk this morning, Lori, with the, the Litton fire in the aftermath. And I know you've been following that closely, but man, oh man, it just sounds like that was a situation where people had so little warning, almost none. I mean, they had minutes to literally flee for their lives. I mean, how unusual is that situation when a fire uh, threatens a, a community so quickly and people have very, very little opportunity to escape? Well, we know this is this is the first time it's ever happened in BC with such short notice. Um, yeah. We often have the benefits of evacuation alerts and then orders. Um, the situation in Lytton was absolutely tragic, and I I just feel for all of those people who have been displaced and who have lost their homes. Um, yeah. Remember too, there's many people also um, hundreds of of properties that are on evacuation alert and order around the province right now. We're still in hot, dry conditions, and we still need to be very vigilant around fire. Yeah, I certainly join you there in uh, offering my sympathies to everybody affected here by the by the situations. When you take a look at where we are right now and kind of the fire season uh, continuum, I mean, we're just really right at the start of it, right? So, I mean, you know, we're just starting this. Yeah, our our fire season typically in BC really gets going about this time of year. Um, and in fact, often it isn't until mid-July through the month of August where we get our hottest and driest temperatures where the fire um, the fire danger really builds up. So we are on an early start to our fire season. We have a full two months still to go. And um, we know, we know from, from our lifetimes of experience that it's going to get warmer and drier through the months of July and August. Yeah. Maybe we're going to be lucky this year and we're going to get a wetter summer coming up, but that's not what the long-term forecasts are telling us. So, you know, it's really important that we all think forward. Um, maybe we can take some lessons from very hard lessons learned in Lytton. You know, that proactive um, components, being ready for fire. I'm right now in Merritt, we're shrouded in smoke. Um, you know, thinking about all the fire-prone places in British Columbia being prepared um, in terms of knowing what to do in the case of an evacuation alert or order, having grab-and-go bags ready, having all your documents, medications, everything ready to go at a moment's notice. All right. Speaking to Professor Lori Daniels from UBC, Faculty of Forestry, she's an expert on, on wildfires. I know, I know you've studied kind of the history of, recent history of wildfires in our province. We've, we've gone around, we've been through this before. Does this one, though, seem in any way different or more threatening, more menacing compared to some of the other uh, fire seasons that we've seen in the past? This is the most extreme fire season um, on record in terms of the, uh, as we've seen, um, record-breaking temperatures. The extreme heat in the days leading up to the fire in Linton were a major contributing factor there. The record-breaking heat with this heat dome affecting us, um, a strong indicator of the effects of climate change and, and our forests being in a condition in many places where we have abundant fuels because of, you know, a hundred years of effective fire suppression and changes in the way that we're using the land has made many of our forests, especially in the southern half of the province where the fire danger is high and extreme. Our forests are really primed. They have a lot of trees and, and dead debris within them, burnable materials that under these hot, dry conditions are really primed for an intense, fast-moving, and extreme wildfires. Okay, that's a really, really troubling thought of, of what's potentially to come here. And you talked about learning some of the, the hard lessons as we go forward. And you talk about that kind of fuel supply that's out there in, in our forests. 
What can we do about that? Are there any kind of preventive measures do you think we should be doing more of right now? Absolutely. We can be proactive from individual homeowners to communities right up to forest industry and provincial governments. So individual homeowners, I strongly encourage you, learn about the FireSmart program, FireSmart your homes, make sure there's no burnable debris in your gutters um, or up on your roof, move burnable debris away from your home, make sure firewood is not stacked next to your home, that's all kindling. In case of an ember storm, like we heard the embers that came into to Lytton and lit vegetation and firewood and, and other material adjacent to homes and then the homes caught fire, we want to avoid that in future. So individual homeowners connect. Communities around the province are looking to mitigate fuels, thin out their forests and get rid of burnable debris in the forests surrounding neighborhoods and towns. Support your local communities in those actions. Um, and then we need transformative change. We need to rethink our forest industry. We need to manage for resilience. We have to compromise how much money we make economically from the forest in the short term so that we have a long-term sustainable forest that we can live in and earn from and coexist with fire. Let me, let me play a clip here for you, Professor Daniels, of uh, Richard Manwaring, Assistant Deputy Minister in the Ministry of Forests here, talking about some of the evacuation orders and advisories and warnings that we've seen in the province the last few days. Let's have a listen. I'll get your thoughts here. When these fires begin to, as you outlined, uh, uh, create a, a challenge in the interface for communities and uh, uh, people living uh, in rural BC in particular, we begin to involve uh, setting up evacuation alerts and then evacuation orders. And we do that in partnership with local governments uh, and, uh, and implement those and you'll begin to see those as these fires create threats around the province. So. Okay, that Richard Manwaring there, Deputy Minister of Forestry in BC, and you, you heard him talk there about some of the interface areas. Those are the areas that are areas of forest that are very close to uh, population centers, correct? Absolutely. The, the interface yeah. is the zone where our communities and neighborhoods interact with the wild forest. So it's right. the edges of towns, it's the neighborhoods. We have, you know, beautiful neighborhoods in the interior of BC, but many are expanding out into very fire-prone forests. So we need to be aware of the environment that we're living in. We also need to be aware of the environments in which we're recreating. There's lots of people camping and getting out into the backcountry. We've been encouraged to get outdoors, trying to escape, you know, the isolation of COVID. But that puts us all at risk. So those those interface fires, that wildland, wild forest, and urban is where we have really critical issues, where um, the homes are first at risk in a fire. And also, it's where we're recreating, where we interact with trails and bike trails and quads and all the rest of it that, that put those forests also at risk from ignitions from us. So it's a two-way street, fire coming towards our communities or us creating fire that can spread into the forest. It seems like it's uh, kind of a cliche, but you hear about the, the perfect storm for fire conditions. And just in the last few days, just I've been learning a little bit more about some of this fire behavior, especially in the atmosphere, reading about pyrocumulus cloud formation uh, in a fire zone and how that can trigger lightning strikes and uh, cause even and ignite even more fires. And it's, it's terrifying. You look at some of these photos and the way these fires can behave. 
But we knew this coming in, right? Like, I know you've looked closely at some of the other fire jurisdictions in North America, notably California. And I, I recall you were warning people, hey, get ready here in B.C. because we could be looking at similar threats here. Um, it breaks my heart to say, yes, my colleagues in California have been watching us in B.C. and saying, you know, the combination of our expanding, growing communities in that interface, that wildland interface, the warmer and warmer temperatures that we've been experiencing in the last decade, the more intense fires, wildland firefighters and fire managers have been telling us for the last decade, the fire behavior that we're observing in BC is exceeding anything they've experienced in the past. We're hearing that in BC. We're hearing it in California. We heard it in, in uh, Australia last year. We've heard it throughout Europe or European countries as well. This is a global phenomenon. We're experiencing fire that is more intense, that's faster moving and putting more communities and lives at threat around the world. Now is our time to really start adapting and acting. This is a climate emergency, and a part of that is the fire emergency that we're facing right now in British Columbia. The combined heat and fire is, is a serious threat as we're, as we're experiencing this week for people's lives and well-being. Final question for you, Professor Daniel. Speaking of the heat waves, can we? Obviously, I think we can expect more. We can expect more heat waves. We can expect more extreme fire weather, more extreme fire behavior in the future. Like when you look down the road here, just this summer, this summer coming up, do you anticipate we're in for a very, very difficult couple of months here? I mean, could people in the Lower Mainland, let's say in Metro Vancouver, could they? Can they anticipate smoke? in the air, in the atmosphere? Absolutely. I think all of us in BC should be anticipating more fire and smoke. There's uh, Fire risk is very, very high south of the border as well. Remember last September, we experienced some of the most intense smoke episodes, um, and that was smoke coming from California, Oregon, Washington State, as well as smoke that comes from the interior of BC. So we all need to be prepared for the heat and the smoke. There's excellent advice on the BC Center for Disease Control, how to deal with smoke, um, how to deal with the heat. These are all combined issues. So um, I'd encourage people, please take a look at those websites, read them carefully, trying to stay cool, creating fresh air, finding rooms in your house that you can have air conditioning, air filters, um, keeping drapes closed, windows closed in the heat of the day especially when there's smoke, are going to be critical. And thank goodness the restrictions are lifting a little bit so that we can get to cool places like malls and recreation centers, libraries, where there's air conditioning and your body can cool down. You can breathe fresh air in those public places if you don't have air conditioning in your home. So many of us don't in the Lower Mainland. It's not something that we are adapted to. And so um, those public spaces, if we can still get to them safely with respect to covid Um, they're going to really benefit us. So watch out for your neighbors as well. Elderly people we know are so vulnerable. Reach out and help your neighbors and and be prepared for the heat of the summer. It's still coming towards us. Thank you for your expertise this morning. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Stay safe, everyone, and be fire smart. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about a story now we followed closely here on the show. BC's overwhelmed emergency response system already under pressure even before the deadly heat wave and the wildfires. But it was the record heat that really highlighted this crisis. Thousands of calls to emergency services, to 911 
people looking for help as they collapsed and were in distress because of the heat. You had waits of up to two hours for an ambulance to respond to some of these emergencies. Tragically, we saw some person even died literally on the steps of a local firehouse where they went for help after an ambulance did not show up. Take a look at the death rate after the heat wave. 486 sudden deaths reported over five days during British Columbia's unprecedented heat wave. This heat wave carved a path of death through our province. Is our emergency response system up to the task? I think quite clearly it failed uh, during the recent heat wave. I got Tom Stamatakis standing by here from the Canadian Police Association for his thoughts. But first, have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong. You're going to hear the head of the Emergency Health Services for British Columbia here apologizing. We'll talk more about that. Listen first. As the heat wave cut a path of death across British Columbia, BC Emergency Health Services failed to activate its 24-7 emergency coordination center until Tuesday, the day temperatures began to cool off. We had all the powers we needed to respond to the heat wave. We were facing unprecedented challenges for our staff. The Emergency Coordination Center, according to the organization, allows it to reprioritize work and redeploy staff to focus on a crisis. The union is not impressed. That's a poor decision because we need to be, uh, be prepared for these emergency situations. And there's mounting evidence the service was not prepared. Massive waits for people calling 911. Ambulances delayed hours or never arriving. Families heading to fire halls in a desperate bid to revive a loved one. For at least one man, it was too late. It's been incredibly hard. I think we're impre- incredibly proud of our staff. And I think that we've done a very good job in the response. Do you think that waits of two to three hours for life-threatening calls are acceptable in British Columbia? We know some people have waited too long for a response, and we... Um, We we sympathize and we apologize for that. Okay, that was the voice of Darlene McKinnon there, the Chief Operating Officer of BC Emergency Health Services. And I think there was quite a stark contrast there when she said, we've done a very good job in the response to the heat wave and almost in the same breath apologizing for people who waited over two hours for an ambulance or an ambulance that never came at all. Let's discuss now with my guest, Tom Stamatakis. He is the president of the Canadian Police Association, a former long-serving member of the Vancouver Police Department. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Tom, thank you for coming on. No, no problem, Mike. Okay, what can you say about BC's emergency response system right now? Like, is it broken? What What is your analysis of it? Well, I don't think there's any... Uh, that's incontrovertible that, that it's broken. There, there, this was an epic fail in response to a three-day heat wave when our infrastructure was completely intact and at every level th- there was no ability to respond. So it was a fail. Uh, I think the people responsible for these institutions and different levels of government let the public down and also let down the people that are out there every day doing the work, these paramedics. I mean, the only part of the comment that you played that I agree with is I think that individual paramedics did an incredible 
a job in very untenable circumstances where they're making these very, very difficult decisions on how to treat and who to treat, uh, totally overwhelmed, and in a way that has been so well documented over many months, even years, and, yeah. and nothing has been done about it. Yeah, no, I think you, you absolutely have to give a tip of the hat and, and grateful thanks to all the first responders, the paramedics, the firefighters, uh, the police as well who responded. It's not their fault that they're under-resourced. It's not their fault that you had uh, 25 ambulances in Metro Vancouver sitting parked, empty, and unstaffed with uh, unprecedented demand for services and people waiting two hours for an ambulance and there's a bunch of ambulances sitting there not even in service. That's not their fault. They did the best they could, right? But just but here's an example of where uh, failing to properly respond to the shortage of paramedics has a knock-on effect across all of the emergency services. So when they don't have the capacity, that means the 9-11 operators that are taking calls can't transfer the calls in a timely way, so that means they're not getting to other calls. That means the public are waiting. When the right. paramedics don't have the capacity to respond to the medical calls, in the community, that means a police officer standing by and that police officer can't get to another call. So there's this huge knock-on effect that everybody wants to ignore or minimize, and it's undermining uh, the ability for uh, the public, public safety personnel to respond to the public when they when they're in distress and that that yeah. to me is unacceptable yeah no you're, you're absolutely right i think there's kind of like a domino effect there that, that kicks in for sure like when a call comes into ecom as i've learned here in the last week to a 911 call and there's someone needs an ambulance that call then has to be transferred to an ambulance dispatcher and there might be an, an even longer delay and that 911 operator has to stay on the call so now you've got more 911 calls c- coming in and getting backed up and not being answered in time that's right? right. And so yeah. so you've got report after report that's been written about how, just using Vancouver as an example, the VPD is operating at 2009 staffing levels with the city growth that's happened, increased demand for service, et cetera, et cetera. You've got report after report around the challenges at ECOM and the burnout in the staff there. You've got report after report written about the challenges in the paramedic services. You've got the Vancouver, just using Vancouver again, the Vancouver Fire Service that have also identified challenges that they're having with resources. You know, but 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 we want to have a conversation about cutting services, defunding, and then and then so the consequences. Now we we've got what what did you say? Over 400 people across the province that have lost their lives, perhaps. Uh, needlessly. I mean, people should be concerned about this. This is, like I said, what happens if we have uh, an event anywhere in this province where infrastructure is disrupted? I mean, we're seeing now with some of the fires where infrastructure is affected and it makes it even more challenging. We need to have the capacity to be able to respond to these issues when they come up. Right. There's been 486 sudden deaths over five days during the unprecedented heat wave, which is nearly a 200% increase in the expected death rate over that, over that period. Speaking to Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association, what did you think of the, uh, the comments there from the, the head of BC Emergency Health Services who, who says on the one hand, um, that the, she thought that the emergency response system did a very good job in responding to the heat wave, and at the same time, she issues an apology to people who uh, waited hours for an ambulance or for an ambulance that never, that never arrived at all. 
I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, what what can you say about that? I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous that someone would suggest that. Um, I think, like I said, the individual paramedics did a, as good of a job as they possibly could in the circumstances. I'd be asking questions around. Well, if there were twenty five ambulances sitting around, what steps were taken to try and find people to put those ambulances into services? What steps were taken to to to, to talk to other levels of government or other agencies that perhaps could have stepped in in the short term to get people the assistance that they needed. Um, you know, we're hearing nothing about that. What was done proactively, knowing, you know, the, the heat wave was forecast, what was done proactively to build the capacity, looking at other organizations in, in our community to be able to do that so that we could respond yeah. to these emergencies. After, you know, doing things after the fact is ridiculous. It's, it, you, know, it, 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 you know, where is the accountability around this level of, of failure, uh, which yeah. is what it was? Well, I, I think it was quite evident in that Global News report that we played that uh, reported that the emer- an emergency coordination center was not set up and activated until Tuesday which is when the temperature started to cool off and after a lot of people had died. Uh, let me play this clip for you, Tom, get your thoughts. This is uh, Gord Ditchburn, who was a guest on my show here on Monday. He is the president of the BC Professional Firefighters Association, and here he is discussing his own experience working during the heat wave. Have a listen. Uh, I worked Sunday, this past Sunday, in the heat wave, and our, our crews were out countless uh, times. We came back uh, from, a, from a medical emergency to find patients uh, uh, lined up at our door and wow. seeking help that they couldn't get from a failing system. To our paramedics, our dispatchers, other, others out there, all I want to say is thank you for everything that you've done and are doing during this traumatic time. Uh, the system is failing, it's broken, and we need better. We can't, this is unacceptable. Okay, Gord Ditchburn there, head of the Firefighters Association. Can you imagine that, uh, going, getting back to the, the fire hall and seeing these people literally lined up at the door, desperate for help because an ambulance has not, has not shown up. I mean, Tom, can you comment on how this, how frustrating is this for first responders, like for the firefighters, the police officers, the paramedics, when they want to help people, they're trained to help people, but the system is letting them down? Well, it's extremely frustrating, and the story that uh, uh, Gord described is is one that every single one of the of the emergency services could tell you. I mean, I I can I I had conversations with police officers that were um, at homes feeling helpless while people were uh, literally ha- having a medical emergency in front of them. We had uh, police personnel making their own arrangements to get people to hospitals. We had. Um, police officers trained um, uh, with some medical training, working with police officers, trying to provide provide medical care to get people to hospitals where they can get better treatment. And it, it, it's such a frustrating feeling because, A, you, you want to help, but you can't. These are issues that have been identified again and again, yet our elected officials refuse to properly address these legitimate well-documented staffing shortages and these are services that the public these are core responsibilities of of government at the municipal level and at the provincial level and that the the public pay for and expect and we're not providing them not and so that's the one piece it's the impact on the public but the impact on police officers and paramedics and firefighters of the futility of trying to do 
what you want to do, what you're trained to do, but you can't because you don't have the capacity to do it. The moral injury and, and the, the impact from a wellness perspective is unbelievable. We've, we, you know, you've got police officers going from one sudden death to another, standing by in a home with a distraught family because a person's uh, with a deceased family member, not being able to do anything about it, not even being able to arrange for the deceased person to be, to, to be moved to another location, to, to, to wow. begin the process of grieving. It's a very, very frustrating environment to be in. And in the meantime, you know, you've got people like our mayor in Vancouver, for example, who's, you know, making all kinds of broad statements and virtue signaling and, and engage in all kinds of performative nonsense, but doing nothing while we're, we're dealing with some pretty serious challenges. You know, you've got the pandemic and all the related issues with that. And then on top of that, you know, we've got this heat wave and now it sounds like we're going to have, you know, a challenging summer in all kinds of other ways. Um, okay. We're seeing these fires that are going to be a further draw on, on resources across all of the services and it just goes on and on and on. Tom Stamatakis, thank you for your time today. I always appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about one of the grossest pests you can have in your home. I'm not talking about your visiting in-laws. I'm talking about one of the nastiest, creepiest, crawliest bugs out there. It is the cockroach. Now, I remember years ago when I was a penniless student, we used to party over at my buddy's apartment. He had cockroaches in there. It was gross, man. He had more roach hotels in there than a Monopoly set. He basically just gave up and tolerated it. And we used to sit there watching a hockey game every now and then, having a few beers, and a cockroach would occasionally run across the floor. Now, that was gross, but that's nothing compared to the nightmare that Dane Finley experienced when he went to check out an apartment for rent in Chilliwack. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Sarah McDonald. Holy s***. There's seemingly no shortage of stories of rental nightmares in the Lower Mainland's heated housing market. Uh, I don't want the mommy. But this one surpasses most of them. Countless cockroaches swarming the walls of what Dane Finley thought was a suitable suite in downtown Chilliwack. Came across a two-bedroom apartment in my budget. New floors, new paint, it needed to be cleaned, but I figured I'd be able to make it work. Just as the prospective tenant was signing on the dotted line. I noticed this big black spot. I was kind of like, what was that? So I moved the fridge out of the way, and when I did, it's just this giant pile just spread out all over the place. And by the time I got my video rolling, it was about 20 seconds after I had moved the fridge, so quite a bit of it had scattered, but it was probably a square foot patch that was at least an inch thick, just thousands of cockroaches. The cringeworthy video footage he captured of it has since been widely viewed and shared. Oh okay, you guys, let's get out. Yeah. Finley walking away from the contract for the unit, which was listed for $1,000 monthly, just in the nick of time. Oh, yeah, it's cringeworthy to be sure. You watch this video, all these squirming cockroaches, it's enough to make your skin crawl. Okay, now this is fairly common situation in some Metro Vancouver rental properties. You go to rent an apartment or a suite, and yeah, there's cockroaches in there. Sometimes it can end up in a battle between tenants and landlords in our province. And let's discuss that now with my guest, Elena Shepard. Elena is a reporter 
with VancouverIsAwesome.com. And she just wrote a great article on this, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Elena. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey, you bet. Thanks a lot for coming on. Congratulations on the story you did on this on BC tenants versus cockroaches here. Now, you did kind <laughs> of a, a deep dive into some of the disputes uh, in Vancouver. This is this goes on at the residential uh, tenancy branch, right? You get into the people get into a fight over this sometimes. Exactly, and they yeah. do get into some pretty pretty deep dives here, where it's just a lot of back and forth, and a lot of tenants having to log um, sort of a continued pattern of behavior over sometimes over a several year period, uh, and. A few of them have gotten really, really bad. You're seeing just huge infestations and sometimes tenants not really sure of their rights and what they're able to do to get out of these situations. Okay, let's talk about some of the cases that you've researched, Elena. So tell me the one about the tenant who complained after a cockroach in her suite and she says, what, a cockroach crawled into her ear? Oh my God. <laughs> it's uh, it's absolutely horrible. But in this dispute, uh, she actually claimed, I think, for the maximum amount of money that you can in the RTB, which is $35,000, because she said she wow. had this over like a significant period of time, um, and she provided uh, sort of a bunch of evidence to sort of back up what she had seen. But I think she sort of said that there was a mold issue, and then at one point, one of the cockroaches actually crawled into her ear, because they are prone to kind of these moist areas like that oh. so unfortunately, yeah unfortunately your ear is going to be one of those areas that surprisingly oh will attract them it kind of sounds like a like a horror story something that you would never imagine could happen uh but in this dispute they did seek thirty five thousand dollars from the cockroach issue which is the maximum amount and i think a couple of weeks after she moved in she notified her landlord right away which is the right thing to do uh in any sort of situation like this even if you're worried that the landlord could turn around and say hey well did you cause this as long as you sort of take that first move it meant that you didn't let it go on for too long that's an important thing i think for tenants to consider is that if you let these problems linger you could be seen as possibly held accountable for exacerbating the situation right because you want to get a professional exterminator in there as soon as possible you don't want to take the matter into your own uh, hands in a few of these disputes I had people saying that they were trying to exterminate the bugs with fire which is actually Whoa. a way to get rid of cockroaches but I don't think you want to start setting fires <laughs> or doing wild well things like well, no, I certainly agree with you that trying to fight cockroaches with fire is a bad idea, especially when uh, I've read there's been studies that cockroaches can actually survive radioactive fallout. So, I mean, if there's a nuclear war, I mean, the, you know, the cockroaches could might be the only things that possibly survive. So, I mean, they're tough to get rid of. What about... Um, now, sometimes these ones end up in pretty nasty disputes between landlords and tenants at the residential tenancy branch. And sometimes what the, the landlord will turn around and say, actually, the tenants caused the cockroach infestation. Is that right? That's right. And so uh, what usually happens here is it's very difficult to prove that the tenant is responsible. Uh, but once again, it's just, a, you know, the balance of probabilities here. So if the landlord was able to provide sufficient evidence uh, to show that the owner, you have the onus to prove your case. Whoever makes the claim has the burden of uh, burden of proof. And in most cases, if you let this issue go on, if you exacerbate it, if the landlord has photos of, you know, a very unclean apartment, uh, then that could happen. That the tenant would then have to 
bear the cost of having the extermination. Uh, but if yeah. you provide evidence right away, then that would usually fall on the landlord. Okay, you also researched one case where the the landlord said, well, what's the big deal? I, I gave the tenant some co- some cockroach traps, right? <laughs> I, I gave the tenant some roach motels. Yeah, so I mean, there's some pretty ridiculous stuff. I've done some stuff, too, with rats in the disputes and all sorts of pests like that. But I think in this case, yeah, the tenant had to actually purchase their own mattress cover because it had gotten so soiled. And Ugh. the landlord was saying that they helped them put it on. <laughs> so oh, wow. Like, Thanks hey, a lot. Even, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there's a lot of situations like that where the the landlords will say this absolutely ridiculous stuff and you can all of these disputes um, are available all the decisions are available to look at on the residential tenancy branch Uh, and they're pretty it's a lot of back and forth but it's it really is surprising at times how there won't be evidence and so i think for tenants the really important takeaway is that if you do have an issue document everything from the jump so you need to have a log of everything that happens you know everything that's said and having photo evidence is really crucial too i mean if you move in and like we just heard that story about all those cockroaches there i think the really uh great thing there is you have a video right Right, so it's right it's it's perfect. And so if you do have photos and things like that and you record everything, then you will be able to have that proof in the in the dispute. And that's really important. Okay, Elena, good job on this story. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Well, you heard that creepy crawly story there about landlords uh, and infested uh, suites with full of cockroaches. Check in with Mike Laundry, Westside Pest Control. Hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing good, Mike. What about these cockroaches? How difficult is it to get rid of those? Yeah, they're not an easy pest to uh, to eliminate. When it comes to lots of things like wasps and 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 pavement ants and and rats and mice, we have tons of uh, of, of DIY tips for um, uh, for for people trying to battle uh, pests on their own. But when it comes to cockroaches, uh, you usually need to get a pest control company in to, to help with them to uh, eliminate them for good. Okay, what kind of, uh, what sort of strategy do you use in dealing with those? So one of the first things, and this is something that people can do, and this is one of the biggest helps that's going to, that's going to uh, mean that we are successful when we're doing a treatment, is proper sanitation. And that doesn't just mean a quick wipe down of the counters to eliminate cockroaches. You want to pull fridges and stoves out, do a deep, deep clean in every crack and crevice of the kitchen because the places the cockroaches like to go the most are the places that we go the least. Oh, okay. In your experience, like, do you get a lot of calls from tenants uh, who have got cockroaches in their apartments or suites? I mean, is it usually the landlord that has, that ends up dealing with that or does you sometimes hear from the tenants? Uh, so it, it varies from, from, from building to building, but uh, it is, it is in most cases the landlord's responsibility. However, yeah. um, you know, as as per the call, uh, the, the conversation that you were just having, if if uh, the landlord has made efforts, uh, but the tenant has has let things exasperate for a long enough period, then sometimes you know we, we see situations where the tenant is on the hook for it. But um, we don't uh, we don't get involved in the in the dispute side of things. We're just there to uh, 
provide the treatment when it's uh, when it's needed. Oh yeah, man. I mean, you can't get involved in these these fights. You're just there to do your job, which is deal with these things with extreme prejudice. And I know that you deal uh, and, and you're very effective in getting rid of these things. Okay, here's what we'll do: take a few phone calls here. Now, phone me on the open line on pest control. Uh, if you got a story or tip you want to share, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. JD in White Rock. Hi. Hey, so I'm working in a house right now in White Rock, and I went up to sit down in the driveway up in the alley, and uh, from a railroad tie pops a little uh, carpenter ant to say hello to you guys. Um, I'm calling because I have some carpenter ants that I'm going to have to deal with. I was going to call west uh, west side there, but... Now that you're on the air, I have another issue that is desperate, and I think it's mites, but I can't Ooh. get it diagnosed. Uh, nobody treats for them. Uh, I've called Mite? Did you say mites? Mites? I think mites. They're very small. They move very slowly. Uh, they could be a bird mite or a rat mite. I don't know Ugh. what they are. I need to get them diagnosed. UBC shut down their... You know, their insectology person, they shut that down a year ago. I've called all over Canada trying to find universities. I just want this thing diagnosed, and I want to be able to treat it. Okay, let's find out. Mike, what do you think? Uh, so KPU in, uh, in Langley has a, has a great little entomology department, too. So um, if you haven't tried reaching out to them, I would definitely, I would definitely try, try that. There's a, there's a really good entomologist named Cameron Lake, uh, who's very helpful when it comes to little things like that. Um, so they might be able to help you identify them. It sounds like it, it could be mites. And when it comes to things like, like mites, similar to fleas, until you have treated the thing, the underlying issue that's, that's causing them, there isn't a lot to make them go away. That, that said, um, most mites are, are, are after uh, a fur or feathered uh, animal, so they might bite a person, but they're not going to lay their eggs on a, on a person. So as soon as you can eliminate that bird, eliminate those, those rodents, or give your pets a, a flea treatment, it may take a couple more weeks for all the adult insects to die, but they will mm. go away once the uh, the animal issue has been uh, has been taken care of. Okay, good luck with that, JD. Mark on the line in New West. Hi, Mark. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Go uh, ahead. I, just, I had a I had a good one. Yeah, I I caught 21 mice. I had Ooh. a real mice problem in my rental apartment, and uh, the landlord and uh, him and his wife. They popped by my house or the apartment unannounced. That I guess they wanted to see if, if we had a filthy house, which we don't or didn't in the rental apartment. So they were eating my clothes and eating my food, and so I kept a bill for everything, and I had to go buy the traps. I was on a first-name basis with the health inspector there in New Westminster. I call him up every day type of thing. Hey, I caught two more. So I was going away uh, out of the country, I Went to the landlord at his office. I says, here's my post-dated checks for the next year, and here's my bill for, for the mice. He goes, we're not paying that. I says, I thought you'd <laughs> say that. I says, i got a deep freezer in my apartment. I'll go get the 21 frozen mice. I says, I'll oh. bring them back to you. And he says, hey, just pay him. He's a good tenant. And that was it. It was done. So. <laughs> okay, so once, once, you, once you threatened to present him with the frozen mouse bodies, that's when he buckled and caved. That's when the wife said yeah. in the other room said, "Pay hey, um, you know? Yeah, and good. It wasn't like I was, I wasn't suing or anything. Here's, 
here's my clothing, here's Okay, Mark, Mark, thank, thanks a lot for that. You're breaking up a little bit there, but... Okay, but this guy took a, a direct action there, Mike. Deal with this thing, you know. I'll, I'll I, keep I, that in. I'll definitely keep that in mind for a recommendation for any of our uh, our, our our tenant customers in in future that are trying to uh, recoup their costs. Yeah, I don't uh, think I, I don't wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put dead mice in my freezer though. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean that's not one you're planning to use again. Well, no. Okay, Mike. It's always great to have you on today. And once again today, thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it.